Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Hey, welcome to another episode of Cerebral Faith Live. I'm Evan Minton, and I'm still having some uh, audio diff- uh, video difficulties. If you can hear me, please say something in the live chat. Um, so anyway, tonight we are going to be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be talking about the issue of divorce. Hold on a second. So, can you, so can you hear me? Do I have, do I have audio? Um, I'm not seeing my uh, avatar vibrate, even though my mic is on. Let me, system preferences, and sound. Sound, internal microphone is going. Okay, okay, good. You, I don't know why my camera is not working. I'm probably going to cut some of this stuff out, uh, you know, to make the replay value better. Um, of course, it, it takes about 24 hours for the video to buffer for me to cut this stuff out, so sorry, sorry about that. Didn't even do the intro this this episode. Um, my cam, my webcam is actually working when I use other applications like QuickTime Player, but when I try to use StreamYard, I don't know what's going on. I'll have to like contact the people at StreamYard or do some googling. Um, but anyway, as long as you can see my slides and you can hear me, that's really the ultimately what's uh, important. Um, and the people watching, listening to this on the podcast, the audio podcast later on Anchor and Stitcher and stuff, that you, you guys won't care anyway because you're not seeing me anyway. Um, so, de- exegeting the Sermon on the Mount, Part Six: the Divorce. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm in, in order to keep this uh, it, beginning point from being longer than it already is. I'm just going to skip over the. Uh, summary of where we are so far you can see it on the on the screen we're still in matthew 5 and um we are uh we're not going to talk about this terribly uncomfortable subject come back next week sorry about that we're closed (laughs) i'm just kidding don't leave uh we don't do that here although the topic of divorce makes the church as uncomfortable uh as as the topic of homosexuality makes the world 
I would say, yeah, I would say that the topic of divorce is as comfortable in the church as homosexuality is outside the church. We still have to talk about it because the Bible does, uh, and it's a it's a real uh, it's a real issue that uh, affects people. I'm not going to be like those preachers who skip over Genesis chapter six verses one to eleven because they just don't know what to do about the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and bearing children to them. Whether it's weird or uncomfortable, we still have to talk about it. The Bible does, and so we would not be doing justice to the whole counsel of God if we skipped over this topic. Um, so, and hopefully, this doesn't result into uh, a whole bunch of people subscribing, unsubscribing on mass. So, here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter five, verses thirty-one to thirty-two. Jesus says, "Quote." It has been said, anyone who give, divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, end quote. In, uh, the, in a note in the CSB Study Bible, Christian Standard Bible, Robert H. Stein says in an in a footnote that, quote, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, Jesus challenged a loose rabbinic paraphrase of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, that distorted the original meaning of the text. In the hands of the rabbis, Deuteronomy 24, 1, greatly multiplied the number of offenses that could justify divorce. For instance, uh, rabbinic commentaries on Deuteronomy 24 cited minor complaints, such as, such as a, a wife's fading beauty or her tendency to burn food as legitimate grounds for divorce. However, Jesus kept true to Deuteronomy 24.1 and insisted that sexual immorality is legitimate grounds for divorce. People who divorce for frivolous reasons and remarry are guilty of adultery since their original marriage covenant has not been genuinely dissolved, end quote. And in the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, Craig Keener says, quote, uh, Matthew 5.32, except for sexual immorality. One school of Pharisees, the school of Hillel, allowed divorce for any reason. The other, the school of Shammai, allowed it only for sexual immorality, as here. A legal divorce permitted remarriage, but without a valid divorce, a wife's new marriage was invalid hence adulterous in a jewish legal setting the wife's divorce was more the wife's divorce was more at issues than the husband's because jewish law in, in principle permitted men to have multiple wives here jesus here depicts divorce as invalid apart from the partner's in, infidelity because jesus often used graphic hyperbole see note on verse 30 uh, offered general statements that might be qualified in some cases see note on 1 corinthians 7:15 and elsewhere treated the dissolution of marriage as genuine though normally wrong confirm matthew 19:6 and john 4:18 some view the present statement as hyperbole Hyperbole was meant to graphically reinforce the point. Here, uh, the warning against breaking one's marriage, end quote. God does not like divorce. In, Ma in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, we read, quote, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. So guard yourself in the spirit and do not break faith. God hates divorce. Say it with me. 
God hates divorce. He says he hates it. Jesus said that the only grounds was sexual immorality. Divorce is not morally permissible in most circumstances. Now, I said most circumstances. There are some circumstances. But so when should you get a divorce, though? Well, God doesn't care whether you fell out of love. Uh, not that that's possible anyway. For uh, I don't I don't think it is. First Corinthians thirteen says love never fails. If it failed, it wasn't love to begin with. It might have been infatuation that you fell out of. The the infatuation, the warm fuzzies might have fallen off, uh, may have worn off, but it wasn't love. Uh, you can the the mushy gushies can stop, but mushy gushies are not love. Um, and by, do not confuse love with for, with warm fuzzy feelings. Warm fuzzy feelings never last, or you know, not permanently. They may come, they may come back, they may come and go, but they're not going to be a constant. If you're counting on having an emotional high for the entirety of your marriage, you're going to go through wives like cell phones, and you'll never be satisfied. I'll come back to the issue of whether uh, of love not being a feeling. We're going to get I'm going to I'm going to talk about this again when we get to Jesus's command to love your enemies. Love your enemies is not feel the warm mushy gushies towards your enemies. That would be a very unreasonable command. Uh, but anyway, um it didn't go to the next slide. Oh, here we go. Um God doesn't care if your partner annoys you. If you think he or she ought to spend more time with you rather than be overly absorbed in, in, in their work, uh, or if they if they leave their socks and their underwear and their and their dirty clothes everywhere, uh, if they you know leave lots of hair in the shower drain, um, if they just do like a whole long laundry list of things, if they if they have an annoying personality, God does not care about that. Make it work. God doesn't care about your long list of faults that you have with the other person unless your husband or wife is doing something extremely harmful to you like committing adultery with another or as i'll argue uh in a moment abusing you you know actually beating you up or or, or actually causing real emotional damage not like not like that meme emotional damage <laughs> uh you have you have no more un unless unless they're actually abusing you or being sexually unfaithful, you have no moral right to divorce your partner. So this should give us pause when we are considering marrying someone. Think very carefully before you do it. Make sure that you know that this person is truly the person you want to devote the rest of your life to. It is a lifelong commitment. Till death do us part as the common prescriptive wedding uh, vows say. And there will be very few circumstances where you can legitimate, where you can divorce the other person uh, without getting God's disapproval. Uh, so God, I, sh I should have worded this on the slide. I should have said God will rarely tell you to get a divorce, not never tell you. Uh, but I mean, if you... Except in those very few circumstances, which I'm going to get into in more detail, God, this this is for the God told me crowd. 
uh, God told me to divorce my spouse. God told me to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, if you ever hear God telling you to divorce your spouse for a reason that isn't given as a legitimate grounds in the biblical text, I got news for you. It ain't God. It's the other guy. God will never t speak to you in that still small voice and tell you to do something that in his written word, he explicitly, you know, he's not going to come. The still, the still small voice, which I do, I do think God can do. God can tell you, God can impress upon you what you ought to do. Should I marry this person? Should I, t should I take this job or something? You can ask God about that and, and you can, you can get sort of um, an inner, an inner witness about some of these more specific things that the Bible can't really instruct you on. Um, but if he's telling you, if that voice is telling you to do something that contradicts what the Bible says, yeah, it's not God. It may be your own desires, or it may be the other guy. Maybe Satan. Divorce her. Yes. Divorce her. Yes, Lord. As you see in the the, the cartoon here. God, um, God, God will never tell you to explicit to do anything. That it, it contradicts what he explicitly spelled out in his word. By the way, if you have any questions or comments, leave them in the live chat, and I'll get to them after the after the slides are over. Now, God might tell you he might that still small voice might tell you to get a divorce if your circumstance is is extreme. Again, like if your wife is sleeping around with other guys or if she's abusive to you, and the same goes for the ladies. This. This doesn't contradict his word. In Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 12, we read, quote, Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What, what did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. End quote. So the question that is often raised when we discuss uh, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and in this Markan parallel is what about abuse? Jesus doesn't, he says, uh, yeah, don't divorce your wife uh, except for sexual immorality. I have had the misfortune of hearing some Christians argue that physical and or verbal abuse are not valid grounds for divorce. After all, again, Jesus didn't include abuse in the list of things that he said that made divorce permissible. He only included sexual immorality. They will argue he only mentioned sexual immorality as, as the exception, so anything else, not a valid grounds. Uh, 
including abuse. It's not a it's not a valid cause for divorce. I will argue why this toxic, misguided, and destructive false teaching is wrong, and why those who preach it should repent. Yes, I said repent. For such a teaching is not merely a secondary or tertiary doctrinal error. It is a false teaching with horrific consequences. God is a good, good father. As much as God hates divorce, I would argue that he loves you so much more. God is our heavenly father. As John chapter 1 verse 12 says, when we believed in Jesus' name, he gave us the right to be called children of God. That is why Jesus, later in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, Matthew chapter 6 verse 9. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says, quote, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, end quote, KJV. Christian women, you are daughters of God. Christian men, you are sons of God. What father worth his salt? What father who is even remotely decent at being a father would force his daughter to be a man's punching bag? What man who is even a halfway decent father would forbid his daughter to endure the hell that is domestic abuse, being beaten and screamed at every day, being psychologically tormented and bloodied and bruised? I dare say that anyone, human or deity, who would demand such a thing is not someone we ought to call father. Such a man or deity is evil and twisted and not worthy of worship. Now, given that God is, is a good father, and he is morally perfect and is worthy of worship, it follows by Modus Tollens' reasoning that he would not want a woman or a man, since they, are, since they are sometimes victims of abuse too, even if less often, to remain in an abusive relationship. To modify an argument Jesus used about God's fatherhood, uh, if you who are evil would get your daughter away from an abuser, how much more would your morally perfect father who is in heaven if you who are evil would get your daughter away from an abuser, how much more would your father in heaven? In the form of a syllogism, my argument looks like this. One, no father who is a good father would force his daughter to stay in an abusive, relation, uh, in an abusive marriage. Two, God is a good father. Three, therefore, God would not force his daughter to remain in an abusive marriage. The conclusion follows logically from the premises via Modus Tollens' reasoning. If the premises are true, then so is the conclusion. So if you're one of the Christian pastors who thinks abuse is not a valid grounds for divorce, you're going to have to reject one of the premises. But which one? Surely you won't argue that premise two is false. God is not a horrible father. You would rightly be denounced as a heretic if you denied premise two. Well, what about premise one? Are you honestly going to sit there? Are you honestly going to sit there and tell me that a good father 
would tell his daughter to stay in a relationship where she is psychologically and or physically tortured because the bastard husband can't control his temper? If so, that is one heck of a bullet to bite. It would require an extremely powerful argument that I cannot even conceive of to convince me that any man who makes his daughter stay in an abusive relationship is anything but a low-life piece of garbage who doesn't actually care about his daughter at all. But if both premises are true, rationality requires affirmation of the conclusion. Sweet, sweet logic. That's what we do here at Cerebral Faith. We use the brains that God gave us. God is no more in the business of making his children remain in abusive marriages than he is in the business of giving us stones when we ask for bread or snakes when we ask for fish. Secondly, the critic makes an argument from silence. The argument from silence is a logical fallacy uh, when one makes an argument on the basis of what someone does not say rather than on the basis of what someone does say. In biblical studies, there are a lot of these. For example, sometimes skeptics of the Bible say, Mark and John don't mention the virgin birth. Therefore, they didn't even believe in the virgin birth. That's an argument from silence. Or the Apostle Paul never mentioned the virgin birth, therefore he didn't know about it or didn't believe in it. Same example, different person, different biblical author. By the way, this is where Nick Peters of Deeper Waters came up with his I affirm the virgin birth meme. It's an ongoing satire where a Christian must always mention that he believes the virgin birth at least once in every single context, otherwise it means he doesn't believe in it. Um, Nick Peters is just making fun of this stupid atheist argument. Um, sometimes fundamentalist boomers will argue, uh, the Bible does not record guitars being used in worship, therefore we shouldn't use guitars in worship. Uh, that's an argument from silence. So the Bible doesn't mention organs either. The Bible doesn't mention driving to work in a, um, in a Toyota Camry or <laughs> I just pick, I just picked that car model out of rant, uh, out of nowhere. Um, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so therefore he must be okay with it. Um, that's another example of an argument from silence. Well, uh, Jesus never said you shouldn't, you shouldn't urinate on old ladies or kick puppies either. Um, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be okay with those things. Sometimes arguments from silence aren't fallacious, um, but most of the time they are. As I like to say, it isn't Here's how I like to put it. It isn't fallacious when the silence is deafening. If I'm at work one day and my coworker comes up to me and says, we're being invaded by aliens. They're destroying everything with laser blasters. I might dismiss this claim by saying, nonsense. If that were so, I would have gotten an alert on my phone and we would hear a loud ruckus outside. That's an argument from silence, but you can clearly see that it, it hits differently. The silence is utterly unexpected under the proposed scenario. So when Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality uh, makes her the victim of adultery, and one concludes from that that Jesus, uh, from, and one concludes that Jesus was silent on abuse, that, 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 that therefore abuse is, about, is an invalid reason for divorce, he's making the argument from uh, silence. And he's doing so in a fallacious way. 
Also, thirdly, the critic makes the Bible disagree with itself. For Paul adds a reason other than sexual immorality for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7.15. If you hold on the basis of Jesus' words that the only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality, then you have a problem when you get to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16 says, quote, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Uh, if, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to peace, end quote. Fourthly, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to tell us to flee persecution, but not abuse. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, quote, When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, end quote. So flee from, flee from your persecutors. But don't if if you're if you're a, if you're an evangelist and you're being persecuted by the people you're trying to evangelize, run away so they don't kill you. But if you're in a marriage relationship where the other guy is constantly beating you and and puts and, and maybe putting your life in danger, stay put. Is Jesus really that consistent? I don't think God incarnate would be inconsistent. Fifthly. Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 to 11, includes neglect slash abuse as a ground for divorce. It's a, it's a case law. I should, have proof for, I should have proof text. I should have proofread this slide a little better <laughs> the, in that last sentence. In his book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Church, Biblical Solutions for Pastoral Realities, David Instrom Brewer writes on pages 35 to 36 that, quote, Exodus chapter 21 verses 10 to 11 is a text that is usually forgotten, but it provides precisely what is needed, for it allows the victim of abuse or neglect to be freed from the marriage. This text is actually a law about a slave who has married her master. It states the rights that she has if he decides to marry a second wife. This law tells him to make sure that he doesn't neglect his first wife when he marries a second. And then David reads the passage, which says, If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her conjugal love. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 to 11. 
Polygamy was allowed in the Old Testament, and human nature being what it is, when a man took a second wife, he often neglected his first wife and favored the new one. This was especially likely if his first wife had been a slave before he married her. So, so the point of this law was to ensure that the first wife was treated fairly. It says that the husband would not be permitted to withhold food, clothing, or conjugal love from, from her. If he did any of these, she would be able to go free. Before we dismiss this as irrelevant to our marriages today, it is important to remember that this is case law, not statute law, which means that the principles are more important than the details. Then, as now, some laws were written as statutes, summarizing a whole subject area, such as divorce, while other laws were case law. Case law is a collection of decisions made by judges in actual cases that established a new legal principle. These rulings can then be applied to other cases that share something in common with the case that established the principle. Exodus chapter 21 verses 10 to 11 is case law, so we have to ignore the details about slavery and polygamy and look for the principles that apply to all marriages that involve neglect. The rabbis reasoned that if a slave wife had the right to divorce a husband who neglected to supply food, clothing, and conjugal love, then a free wife would certainly also have this right. And they argued that if one or two wives had this right, so did an only wife. End uh, quote. Now, back to the back to the passage at hand and its marking parallel. Why was okay, so we've seen a whole bunch of reasons to think that more than just, you know, your partner is cheating on you is a valid grounds for divorce. Uh, abuse is certainly a valid grounds. Nevertheless, why was Jesus silent on abuse uh in his response to the Pharisees? Why didn't he let, why didn't he give all of the reasons? All of the valid grounds for divorce. Uh, no one should, no one should divorce his wife except for sexual immorality, abuse, uh, abandonment. If you, if, if you know, if you're a believer, if your wife is an unbeliever and she leaves you, uh, why didn't he? Why didn't he just go through the list and only mention this one? Well, because again, as that uh, that end note in the Christian Standard, uh, the CSB Study Bible, and as Craig Keener put it in the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, Jesus was arguing against the any cause interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, verse one. He was he was arguing against the the any cause interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, verse one that Rabbi Hillel endorsed. Jesus was essentially saying, okay, so basically the Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, hey, are you for any cause divorce? Do you agree with Rabbi Hillel's interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1? And Jesus essentially said, no, this verse only talks about sexual immorality, not just anything. Sh Rabbi Shammai got it right. This is more explicit in Mark 10, but it's definitely implicit in Matthew 5, which is the passage we're talking about tonight, um, given the similarities of Jesus' teaching in, in both of these accounts. David Instone Brewer, again in his book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Church, this time on page 61, said, quote, Jesus was answering their question in plain language, and he wasn't making a universal statement. 
Therefore, when he said nothing except sexual immorality, he was saying that the phrase a cause of sexual immorality did not include the extra ground of any cause. And he didn't mean there is no divorce ever in any part of the Bible except on the ground of sexual immorality. If he had been making this universal statement, he would have been contradicting Paul, who allowed divorce for abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, as we, end quote, as we will see in the next chapter, in chapter 6, as David Instone Brewer put it. End quote. Um, now, how should we, how should we respond to Christians? You know, if you're a pastor and you know someone in your congregation uh, who has been divorced, or uh, or if you know one of your friends is divorced, uh, how should we treat a divorced Christian? Well, someone I know in the field of apologetics went through a rough divorce recently. He has been very public about it, uh, but I still don't—I still don't feel right about naming him. I don't want to—I don't want to name drop him, even though he has been very public about what he's been going through. Uh, it, it just still—it still just feels weird uh, to, to name drop him. So I'm not going to name drop him. Um, but what he has written uh, on his website. He had, he had an article that alarmed me. Uh, it alarmed me to a sober warning of how we uh, should look at Christians who have gone through a divorce. It is possible, given our fallen nature, to mistreat our brothers and sisters because they have gone through a divorce. I, I pray that you take these, these warnings to heart. First, don't assume that they were the divorcer. Don't assume that they threw their wives out or or husbands, you know, depending on the on the on the gender. Uh, don't assume they were the ones who uh, took the initiative. They they could have been the divorcee. They may not have. Had, in fact, the fact that they went through the divorce, it could have been entirely out of their control. And. You know me, like a good anti-Calvinist, uh, I think that if you are not in control of what you do, you are not to be a held accountable for what you do. Statistically, women are more likely to leave men than vice versa, though evidently in the first century it was the other way around. Uh, the person I have in mind deeply loved his wife. He, he did everything he could to make her happy. Uh, she had some issues, though. And uh, ultimately, she she ended up divorcing him, and, and it absolutely devastated him. Uh, he, you know, he and in his article, he expressed concern about what would happen if he tried to teach or or get some other position at a seminary. A background check is inevitable, and, and they will find that he has been divorced. What will they do? It is very sad that a minister of the gospel needs to worry about such things when it wasn't him who decided to end the marriage to begin with. Do not assume that because a Christian brother is divorced that he has therefore sinned. It may, it may have been his fault, but it may not have been his fault. Don't assume. You know what they say about people who assume. You make a donkey out of you and me. Oh, wait, that's the NIV translation. <laughs> Um, 
every everyone is imper- secondly everyone is imperfect and falls short even if it was their fault uh if they if forgive as god has forgiven you whether their divorce was before or after their coming to christ and assuming that they were indeed the party that broke things off uh, if this is a sin that he regrets, he expresses regret. You can tell that he regrets doing it. And he has confessed this sin to God and asked God to forgive him. Who are you to hold this over his head? Who are you to condemn what God has not condemned? Do not call unclean that which God has called clean. There is only one unforgivable sin, and that's something to do with the Holy Spirit. I don't know what. I've looked at both options, and they both have some logical and interpretive holes in them, but that's for another day. Uh, I know not. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do know I do know what the unforgivable sin is not. It's not divorce. The church has a forgiveness problem, especially when it comes to those in Christian ministry. Fortunately, this seems restricted to sexual deviancy um, rather than other sins. Um, But when it comes to divorce, uh, the issue of divorce in general, I I, I don't think this is really, I don't think this is in general an issue. I think it's an issue in some places, Obviously, not everyone is uh, is monolithic in their thinking and how they treat certain issues. But in general, I think we actually have a problem of divorce kind of being just kind of we just treat it as a as a lottie da thing. Um, we just kind of turn a blind eye to it. It's a sad thing, and I know I, I know I'm going to sound like a progressive when I say this, but. Preachers across the nation are really quick to condemn the LGBT with fiery anger, but they shrug their shoulders at divorce. A divorce, it's like, you know that meme with the the, ang- the angry flower on the top and the flower is like going tee-hee on the bottom? Like you could put uh, the sin of LGBT and then the, the, the flower is really angry. The sin of divorce, the flower is going tee-hee. It's like, yeah, yeah. Homosexuality, oh, ooh, big, big bad. Divorce, oh, oh, you know, we're all sinners. We're we're all imperfect. You know, it's no big deal. Um, yeah, this needs to change. All sin is bad, and we shouldn't just single out the sins that we particularly don't like. This is not a message aimed uh, at such uh, this at such selective ministers, but it's it's it the one the the one everything I just said about you know don't assuming don't assume that the per the, the person you have the person who is divorced is the divorcer they could have been the divorcee and if they express for you know re- uh, regret, forgive them. This is aimed at people who do take divorce as a serious sin. This is this is not aimed at those uh, la di da ministers that I just railed against. Uh, if, but again, if you can tell uh, that someone in your congregation or someone who wants position at your church or your your university, your seminary, really regrets his divorce, forgive him. 
and give him that position if he's qualified. If he's if uh, thirdly, if they are the victim of if they are the victim of divorce, that is, they are a divorcee and they are hurting because they really loved the person who left them, comfort them. This should go without saying. But if you know that the person uh, isn't someone who initiated the divorce but was abandoned and is suffering from heartbreak, comfort them. Give them uplifting words. Let them know that you are there for them. Ask them if there's anything you can do for them to ease their burden. Be there for them. Now, what about Christians already in a second marriage? Uh, what if they, those, those who divorced on any cause or no, no fault in modern understanding are still married in God's eyes. That's what the marriage was not broken by it. Let, let's say the marriage was not broken by adultery, abuse, or desertion. The divorce is therefore not recognized in this scenario in God's eyes. Ergo, for a man who divorced a woman without a valid cause would be committing adultery. He would be committing adultery because in God's eyes he is still married. However, divorces that were legitimate are recognized by God. The previous marriage was severed. If you are if you are married after leaving an adulterous or abusive spouse, you need not worry. Uh, again, if you have any questions or comments in the live chat, leave uh, leave them there. I'll get I'll get to them after the, the stream is over with. But yeah, again, yeah. Uh, this, in this slide, in this section of the of the talk, I, I'm I have in mind people who they left their spouse on illegitimate grounds, so they're still married in God's eyes. But then they get married a second time, so they are still married. But I'm also answering the question: Well, what if I got divorced on valid grounds? Can I can I remarry? Well, the answer is yes, because in God's eyes, the marriage was. The marriage was killed. It was it was dead. It um, divorce uh, divorce. Uh, David Instone Brewer pretty much said that divorce is like it's just the the legal recognition of something that already died uh, due to sexual immorality, abuse, uh, or desertion. It's just the legal recognition of that, and you therefore you can get remarried. But if you got married for because your wife burned your dinner, if you were if you're a first century Jew and would divorce for such a frivolous reason, uh, then yeah, in God's eyes you're still married. No, you cannot get remarried. You must either uh, reconcile with your former spouse or just remain single. Um, so, but what if what if what if you are currently in a marriage and you got you divorced your previous spouse? For an illegitimate cause. Um, well, okay. Well, for, first, everyone in the okay. I think I'm getting a little ahead of uh, a little ahead of myself. Um, first, everyone in the first century, Jew and pagan alike, assumed a divorcee could remarry. 
uh, if Jesus and Paul disagreed, they would have said so. So, you know, remarriage if, in, in general, this, um, everyone assumed remarriage, you could remarry. So if G if Jesus and Paul were against remarriage, just across the board, whether your divorce was on legitimate grounds or not, they would have specified that. This is an argument that David Instone Brewer makes in his book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Church. David Instone Brewer surveys the culture of the Greco-Roman and Jewish worlds uh, in his book. And the point that he makes is that literally everyone without exception believed that you could remarry after a, a divorce. Roman men and women would receive divorce certificates that said, you are now free to marry any woman you wish, or you are now free to marry any man you wish. In the case of Jews, the certificate said, yeah, you are now free to marry any Jewish man or woman you wish. David Instone Brewer also writes, quote, uh, a Roman citizen who did not get remarried within 18 months of a divorce or within two years if their partner had died could be prosecuted under a law that was enacted by Emperor Augustus in 18 BC. Augustus was concerned that many young men were avoiding marriage by divorcing the brides their parents had arranged for them to marry and, and then living carefree, licentious lives. He was also concerned that there were not enough children being born to Roman citizens. So he wanted these young men to get remarried and father children, end quote. Remember when I said sometimes arguments from silence are deafening? Well, in this case, were Jesus and the New, uh, and the New Testament writers against remarriage in absolutely any circumstance whatsoever, whether your divorce was on one of the, the biblically legitimate grounds or not, they surely would have said so. They would have known that their audience or readers would have uh, uh, have assumed that it was okay, and Jesus of Paul would have known, oh, I need to set the record straight. That they do not set the record straight prob means they probably thought that you could remarry, assuming you got married for a valid reason and not for any cause. If everyone thought remarriage was okay, but Jesus and Paul didn't think so, how would it be reasonable for them to know any better? Remember, Jesus condemned remarriage only in the context of the any cause interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. If you divorced your spouse for a frivolous reason and then married another woman, well, in God's eyes, the marriage never ended. Ergo, you're committing adultery. And also, Paul says abandoned believers can remarry in 1 Corinthians 7.15. So, Again, so now I want to get to the point where I got a little bit ahead of myself answering the question, well, what if I remarried for, what if I divorced for an in, uh, invalid cause and then got remarried? Should I divorce my current wife? No, two, wrong, two wrongs don't make a right. So if you divorced your previous wife on invalid grounds, then you married a, another woman you're like, well, I'm commit. I committed adultery. Like, I sh should I should I divorce my the wife I'm you know I committed adultery with and go back to my old one? The answer to that is no, because two wrongs don't make a right. Don't break more marriage vows. Don't cause more suffering. Don't leave your new children if you've had new children with this new spouse. In his book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Church, 
David Instone Brewer gives a word picture to help get the point across. He says to imagine an ecologist saying that creating cabinets, chairs, tables, etc. from mahogany wood is doing great damage to the rainforest and, and no one should have furniture made from these materials. So you go into your kitchen with a huge hammer and you just start ripping all of the cabinets and mahogany wood out of your kitchen. You just rip them all apart until all you have is a big mess of wood in your kitchen. Is this really going to put things right? No. While you should not have supported a business selling furniture made from woods from endangered trees, now that you have these tables and chairs and cabinets, what's done is done. Tearing them apart and replacing them is just going to cost you time and money and maybe an angry spouse who comes home to the mess. Likewise, you should not get remarried if you previously got a divorce on invalid grounds and then uh but if you if you've already gotten remarried, I don't think you should divorce your new spouse. It would be like trying to put out a fire with a flamethrower. Divorce does not undo divorce. Moreover, if you've already born children with this new person, it would be immoral for you to just up and abandon them. Stay with your new spouse and raise your children. However, you should definitely get on your knees and ask God to forgive you for leaving your former wife. God will forgive you. We have this promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Ask God to forgive you. Resolve never to divorce on invalid grounds again and take care of your new family. So that is the end of this presentation. Now it is time to look at the comment section. The Real Steel Cat says, actually made it right at the start. Let's freaking go. <laughs> this was at 8.04 p.m. Yeah, you made you made it on time. I almost didn't make it on time. I was running late. I had this, I had this like thirty minute YouTube video, uh, a reaction video that I was watching with my little sister. I looked up the at the clock and I was like, oh my gosh, it's it's seven fifty seven p.m. So I just dropped everything, ran in here, and just started getting my equipment ready. And you said the audio is good. What your pastor didn't tell you says that you could hear me. And I'm th I'm thankful for that. I saw these comments a little earlier. That's good. I don't know why I don't have cam I don't know why my video is not working. Again, for those who are listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast, of uh, the audio of which is now, you know, one and the same with episodes of Cerebral Faith Live, the web show. Uh, you guys aren't you you podcast listeners aren't going to care because you don't you're not seeing me anyway. Uh, but yeah, it would be nice if I was just uh, more than a luminous avatar. I'll, I'll, I will contact, I'll either, I will either do some Googling and YouTubing, searching to see if anyone else has this problem and how they fixed it, or I'll contact StreamYard. Because it's not, it's not my webcam, because it works with other applications. It works with like Wondershare Filmora and QuickTime, but it's not working with StreamYard, so that's weird. The real steel cat says, uh, "God uh, told me to 
dump you, God told me to date you, for God told me to follow my heart, in quotation marks. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, lots of people claim God told them to do stuff uh, that he, he really didn't, to, to justify sinful behavior. Um, and a lot of those in the Reformed camp, I think, they have a knee-jerk reaction to this. And so, so some people, they just go really far where you think, oh, my gosh, are you a modern day prophet? God is like literally giving you new revelation. Um, I think God can like put things on your heart and think make you think, yeah, yeah, you really ought to take this new. You really ought to accept the promotion or you really ought to take this job in Florida or something like, yeah, I think he can do that. Um, and some of the, some of the reform camp, they Pretty much what I like to put it, they like to gag God and say, no, if it's not in the Bible, God never said it. I think John MacArthur said some, something um, more or less like that. Not really all that much of a paraphrase. Um, but, yeah. The Real Steel Cat said, my rule of thumb for the unforgivable sin is that you, if you are worried you may have committed it, you haven't committed side topic but yeah yeah actually although i don't know what the unforgivable sin is um i agree with you that if you are desiring god and you are wanting a relationship with him and you are terrified that you might have severed that by committing the unforgivable sin you probably haven't like the unforgivable sin whatever it is like you if you've committed the unforgivable sin you're an apostate at that moment you are you are you have an evil heart towards god and and you either hate it you either hate him or, or don't care about him if you still care that's the holy spirit in you that's you are you know you're still you still have that born again spirit and as someone who has uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and, and suffers from scrupulosity um, around, you know, 2012, 2013, very early in Cerebral Faith's uh, years, actually, I was uh, going through, you know, a sort of Martin Luther phrase, uh, phase, worrying about my own salvation uh, because I had, like, intrusive, blasphemous thoughts. And I was worried, oh, my gosh, you know, if you, you, know, if you even think evil thoughts, you know, uh, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Uh, am I going to hell? And that's what, and I did a whole bunch of research on it. And that's why I, that's, I'm like, ah, the, none of these explanations on what it is. I wanted to find out what it was so I could know if I committed it. And none of the explanations really satisfied me. But fortunately I did come to the conclusion that whatever it might be, I'm pretty sure I haven't committed it. And ever since then I've, I've grown in my walk with God. I have felt close with God. Uh, God has sanctified me. In fact, I, I've told people, you know, this has been a really, really rough year. Uh, lots and lots of stuff have happened to me that you know, I, I that have never happened to me before. But my anxiety is at an all-time low. I pretty much stopped taking my daytime uh, anxiety medicine. And the only reason I'm still taking my nighttime anxiety medicine is because uh, it it has mild withdrawals. That's pretty much the only reason. I, I don't even... Um, 
but I don't really, I don't really need my medication anymore. Uh, I really do think that the more faith you have, the more anxiety, the less anxiety you have. Now, I mean, I still have anxiety, unwar unwarranted anxiety too. Sometimes I'm worried. I have, I have feelings of anxiety when there's no external referent. Like there's nothing, there's nothing that is, is I'm like, I'm not worrying about anything. It's just due to my disorder, but it isn't quite as bad as it was. So yes, it, it is. My anxiety is to a certain extent, a chemical, a chemically based thing caused by my OCD. But at the same time, I think I didn't have as much faith in God as I do now. And now that I have more of it, it's, not as bad. It's like my anxiety is really, really watered down compared to what it was. And so, yeah, I know I didn't commit the unforgivable sin back in 2013. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit would not be working on me to sanctify me through my trials and, and all that. Um, so, yeah, if, if you're if anyone out there listening, like if you're going through this, if you still want God, if you still uh, desire to be with him. Look, Jesus said in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Jesus also said, whoever comes to me, I will, uh, I will by no means cast out. If you are coming to Jesus, he is not going to cast you out. So you don't have to know what the unforgivable sin is to know that you haven't committed it. <laughs> the real steel cat said just put your floating head on a buff anime body lol yeah um <laughs> cerebral faith live i don't think so this is evan's bizarre adventure oh you're coming towards me yes how can i refute your arguments if you are not within earshot <laughs> The Real Steel Cat also said, I worried about my salvation when I was a kid staying up late, listening to R.C. Sproul preaching about predestination on the radio, LOL. Yeah, I'm I'm really not surprised, uh, especially if you especially if you are made aware of the potential of Cal John Calvin's doctrine of evanescence grace, which I mean, I, I'm pretty sure not all Calvinists will affirm. Um Although I, I don't see how on their system they can rule it out. I mean, you, the, the Calvinists can't really say, well, it wouldn't be fair for God to trick you into thinking you're elect and then let go of you. Because, I mean, on their view, literally anything God does, no matter how atrocious, uh, it's still good because God does it. Like, I mean, God causally determines people to sin and then he tortures them forever for sins that he, he made them commit. So... I don't see how they, I mean, they couldn't, they can't rule out evanescent grace on moral grounds. I mean, you know, if they said, well, God would never make you think, he would never irresistibly uh, draw you with evanescent grace, uh, make you think you're elect for a little while and then cause you to apostatize, because that would be a cruel joke. Because uh, then you could just respond, well, who are you, old man, to question God? Uh, yeah, I mean, not all Calvinists aff aff affirm it. I'm sure there's many who would denounce it, but I don't see how, on their view, and on how they view God's... Nope. 
relationship to morality and, and how he conducts things, I don't I don't see how they have any basis on which to rule it out. So yeah, if I in fact there's a common saying that um you know it's really funny that Calvinists know they cannot lose their salvation, but they're not sure that they have it. Arminians know they are saved, but they're afraid they can lose it. <laughs> The Real Steel Cat said, if you started a Discord server, I'd be the first to join. Thanks for the stream. Have a good evening. Hope, hopefully more uh, folks join the streams after summer winds down. You know, I I don't know how to... I'm, I may look into starting a Discord stream and, and, and maybe simulcasting this. My OCD is going to drive me crazy if I simulcast part of the stream to about the Sermon on the Mount to Facebook, and you only have like part six to twelve there. Be like, gotta have part, gotta have part one to five there too. But yeah, I think I might get more, uh, more viewers if I stream to multiple places. And Streamyard definitely will let me do that. Um, I may just have to set up a Discord account and then just get Streamyard to send it there. Um, as far as like people. But I also have been wondering, like last year, I've been getting a lot of people showing up live, and we were having a very interactive Q&A session at the end of every presentation, or, you know, if I had an interview, or if I had um, uh, people who, if I was moderating a debate, a lot of people would show up and, like, ask the debaters questions. But the level of interaction this year has been quite abysmal, and I haven't quite been able to put my finger on why it's not i looked at a video from nick nimmons i've been following nick nimmons since i started youtube um he, he gives some pretty good advice and pretty much everything he said as to why a person might not be getting viewers didn't apply to me i um the, the only thing i can really think of is the time slot last for season one of cerebral faith live i was doing it on monday nights and Today is a Monday, and the reason I'm doing it today is because I'm off, I'm off work today, but I had to I had to go to my Dollar General job on Saturday night, and so I couldn't do it there. And I really didn't feel like putting up pre-recorded audio again. So, yeah, I mean we we had like a couple of viewers tonight. I thought it might have been a consistency issue because as I was like trying the water, testing the waters when I started season two, uh, the first uh, the first episode was an interview with Ken Samples of Reasons to Believe. I kind of, okay, let's try Saturday morning. Let's try, you know, Sunday. There's still a few time slots I haven't chosen, but if it is a time slot issue, if people just can't, show up at 8 p.m. on Saturdays because maybe they're out doing stuff, which, you know, makes sense. Uh, maybe I'll try Saturday afternoons or maybe even early Saturday mornings. Um, the earlier in the day, the better, because uh, I work second shift, and if it's earlier in the day, even if I have to work that day, uh, like if it's at you know, one one p.m. or something. I can I can still go. I gotta I gotta keep people on the Pacific Coast in mind as well as the East Coast. But yeah, I, I'm hoping to I'm hoping to fix the engagement issue. But at least you know 
at least these streams are up for people to watch on the replay. And uh, I hope that in any case, it will be edifying to people who watch it later who couldn't have shown up live. Final comment. Oh, uh, Discord isn't the greatest for streams, but it's great for building online community. I'll have to look into that. I don't. Uh, wait, I, I'm kind of drawing a blank on what Discord is. I think I was con in my mind as I was talking about Discord. I think I was confusing it with Twitch. Is, is Discord more like a Reddit thing, or is it like, a, or is it like a streaming platform like Twitch? Anyway, I, I will definitely I will definitely look into it. So, um, that is all for this week. Come back next week. Um, I might I'm not gonna give a def, a definitive time slot because I want to I want to try a couple of things to to you know to get some to get some of you guys to start coming back and attending for uh, in, for interaction. Uh, the inter as much as I enjoy giving these presentations, I, I, I equally enjoy the, the interactions. Uh, like, I, in order to get some of the Cerebral Faith live excerpts, I've had to rewatch uh, the streams I did in order to get, like, start and end points, timestamps, in order to isolate which portions to excerpt. And I, you know, I, I can recall the, that you know, we we got some we got some pretty good interactions during the Hell series. I got some pushback from Universalists, and there was like, like like a pretty good debate going on there, and and it was fun and enjoyable. And so I'd love to I'd I'd love to be able to do these at a time where at least uh, at least in general people will be able to show up. So I may not do it again at to uh, on Saturday at eight p.m. Oh, actually. I just remembered, this is the week of Cerebral Faith's 10th anniversary. So I am going to be doing uh, the next episode. I will have to go look at my work schedule, see if I'm off Friday. Uh, it will either be on the 12th or the 13th, but the next episode will not be about Jesus taking oaths. We're going to take a, just one short break, and we're, and we're going to do something different to commemorate the ministry's 10th anniversary. It's not the 10th anniversary of the YouTube channel. It's not the 10th anniversary of the live web show, but it is the 10th anniversary of the ministry in general, which started off as just a little blogger blog uh, way back in August of 2012. So I'll, I'll, I'll start that. I'll set that stream up and I'll post it around on, on Facebook. But before I cut it off, I want to give a shout out to my patrons, David Shannon, Redblade Flame, Steel Cat, Slam RN, Andrew Melnick, Nathan Hamilton, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to become a, a Cerebral Faith patron, go to www.patreon.com slash, oh, that's the wrong banner. <laughs> go to patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. And if you're watching this on YouTube, and, or if you're listening to this on the Cerebral Faith podcast and you'd like to more apologetic find, uh, content, uh, either in blog form, podcast form, or video form, 
check out my website, www.cerebralfaith.net. And those who are watching this on YouTube, like the video and subscribe. Those who are listening to the podcast, uh, if you could, go leave a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps people to find the podcast. Uh, and uh, the more positive reviews, hopefully you have a, a positive impression of this uh, podcast. It helps more people find it and uh, helps get the, the message out that Christianity is a reasonable and, and, and true worldview. Thank you for watching. Peace out. God bless. And keep using the brain that God gave you.